Well, just a welcome. Um, it is such a privilege to be hosting this time. My, my heart feels so full this morning. <clears throat> and so if it leaks out my eyes, forgive me. Uh, I'm trying to work out why, and I think uh, part of it is just listening to Rick and Kath and Matt and Shannon and, and uh, God's faithfulness to churches through generations. Amazing thing. I mean, just being in the presence of God with friends new and old, so rich, so rich. And so this week I've found myself thinking back to the very first time we visited this church in 1999. It wasn't in this building, but uh, we came to a similar conference. It was a conference on uh, leadership and uh, churches that planted churches. And I was 25, Renell was 26, um, and... Uh, she was my baby mama. Uh, <laughs> Asher was 10 days old. And uh, some of our friends and family said, you're crazy, don't take a 10-day-old baby uh, across. And uh, we're glad we ignored them. Because uh, at that time, God shaped our lives. And He set us on a trajectory that still shapes our lives 20, almost 20 years today. And uh, to have my, my son now almost 20 sitting at the back with Jack, his friend, and just saying, oh, Lord, uh, do it again. Do it again. Um, you know, one of the things that drew us to Advance, and we've been partnering with Advance for four or five years, is that it was a, a movement of multiplying churches. Uh, and we were, Renal and I were really taken with the, the fact that almost half of the churches, whether they were small, medium, or big, were preparing to plant. And uh, we were just drawn to that uh, because in the four churches that we've led in uh, over 20-some years, they've just always been multiplying churches. We've not known anything differently. In fact, the first time we visited L.A. was to visit a church that we planted from Durban to Pasadena. And I, I want to ask what it means to last through multiplication, uh, what it means to have a persevering, multiplying vision, not based in competition, not based in striving and pressure, but with the godly ambition to plant churches that plant churches in order that we might make disciples that make disciples. Uh, 20-some years later, I'm still convinced that planting healthy churches <clears throat> is the best way of making healthy disciples. And so what does it mean in the words of one of my heroes who passed away this week, Eugene Peterson, what does it mean to have a long obedience in the same direction? He was talking particularly about making disciples, but I want to ask that in terms of planting churches in order to make disciples. And when I think of, of the last two or so decades of leading in multiplying churches, I, I find myself asking, what has kept us going? Uh, because this is a beautiful but brutal vision. It's a dangerous one. Uh, what has kept us going? Why do we still want to do it today? And why do we want you to do it today? And I I want us to go to a, such a well-worn passage. It's the, the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. 
because this passage has fueled us and fed us and kept us on our feet one step in front of the other together with our incredible intrepid team. And I hope it does the same to you. John 6 verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. But one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Terry Virgo was with us recently, and someone in a backyard barbecue asked him, what's the difference between British and American Christians? And he said, you know, uh, American Christians on the whole, he's such a tactful man. He said, American Christians on the whole are just full of entrepreneurial innovation. Uh, We follow your creativity, your invention, your sense of pioneering. I'm just always, whether it's planting or writing songs or writing books or preaching church growth, uh, you just are so innovative. And he said, we need a little bit more of that in Britain. And... uh, And then he said, but you know, we Brits, we sons and daughters of Churchill, we never give up. We never, never, never give up. And I think you need a little bit of that. It was interesting. And maybe that's just about California, not the other states, right? But, but, but what is it to have a vision for multiplication that is both full of endeavor and innovation and entrepreneurial intent, but also a long obedience in the same direction. And we know this passage is actually not about multiplying churches. Let's get it in its its context. It begins after this. Now, after what? Well, actually, after being persecuted by the Pharisees for healing on the Sabbath, and after his cousin, John the Baptizer, had died. 
Jesus was grieving. He was under pressure. And yet it says he had compassion on the crowds. Friends, I wonder if we could just catch the unceasing wells of compassion of the bread of life. In the middle of a great crucible, he puts himself out. A homeless man puts on a catering miracle for the multitudes. Isn't it amazing? Jesus never stops giving himself away. That's the heart of this passage. And we know the miracle of feeding the 5,000. I, I can still uh, smell the salt of the Play-Doh in my Sunday school room. I can still hear my Sunday school teacher saying, what would you do if Jesus asked you for your lunch? And the heart of this miracle of multiplying loaves and fish was not about filling stomachs. The rest of John is Jesus saying, this is not a miracle, it's a sign. I've come not to fill stomachs. I care about your stomachs. I care about the whole person. And yet I've come to fill your soul. I am the bread of heaven. Come down. And I love this, this word when Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks, looked to heaven, and broke them. The original word is eucharistasis, where we get our word eucharist. And it was as though Jesus was glimpsing the breaking of his body for the multitudes. It was, it was as though he was glimpsing that last supper before he went to the cross, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. This will satisfy you. This will save you. This is the compassionate one who saves and satisfies with the brokenness of his body his bread. It was a sign pointing to the cross where Jesus' wounds would heal the broken souls of the multitudes, would bridge the fractured divide of humanity's relationship with God. This miracle was a sign. Amen. But for me, this miracle is also a parable. It's, it's a parable about multiplication. Because there is a multiplication of loaves. There's also a multiplication of crowds. Crowds get multiplied into smaller groups. Mark's gospel talks about 50s and 100s. It's also a multiplication of disciples. Because after Jesus says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And then 5,000 went to 12. Multiplying disciples. And Peter, beautiful Peter, just said, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. He recognized this miracle was a sign. Jesus, the bread of heaven. And so what are some dynamics of multiplication that we see in this miracle that's ultimately about Jesus, the bread of heaven? What, what can we learn in our desire to be a multiplying movement that plants and strengthens churches, even though that's not the first interpretation, that's an application of this passage. Is that all right? I would say firstly that we, we, we learn from this miracle that the true life is in the message, not the model. The true life in multiplication is in the message of Christ, not the model. Or can I put it another way? The true life is in the bread and not in the basket. Make no mistake, there was a model. Jesus had a distribution system 
for getting food to hungry people. He made them sit down on the grass. Verse 12, Mark's gospel of the same account says they sat in fifties and hundreds. They, they collected up the surplus in a basket. But friends, the bread was not multiplied because they sat in groups. The bread was not multiplied because it was on the grass and not in the dirt. The bread was not multiplied because they sat in missional communities and not house churches. You catch my drift. So easily in multiplying movements, we're looking for the magic model. We're looking for the magic basket. But the magic is not in the basket, it's in the bread. It is the power of Jesus that enables the gospel to be multiplied to the multitudes. It is Christ's body, Christ's message, and Christ's own multiplying power that is our great hope, not our silver bullet of distribution. We must not put the cart before the horse. So many people, every generation come with, if you do this, it'll work. And right now, we're back in the house church fad, and that can work. That's one of the distribution models that can work. But we must realize that many of these things are cyclical. There's nothing new under the sun. In the 70s, we did house churches. And what happens is, as Jesus multiplies his gospel, the house churches just grow and get warehouses. <laughs> take over old buildings. There's no magic model. There are healthy models. There are more biblical models. But friends, the life is in the bread. My good friend, Donnie, I remember sitting in a downtown Rialto Cafe with him. Donnie and Jill were about to plant back in their hometown, and Donnie had asked me to be an interim elder with him as they went back to North Carolina, and we we're talking about his first uh, sermon series, and he said, I've got an idea. He took out a napkin, and he drew a cross, and he drew a church steeple. He said, Al, you know that saying, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I said, oh, here we go. He said, well, 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 yeah. He, he said, I am going to preach my first series. Which came first, the cross or the church? See, that by the Spirit of God, God had, had helped Donnie to, to get a sense of actually you plant a church around the cross, not around a church. The church will come when you preach the message. And I think he took about a year before we preached on deacons and elders and how to have a prayer meeting and how to take up an offering. And I, all the stuff we believe in, that's important, but it's just not as important as the bread. Oh, friends. Michael Eaton came through here about eight years ago, just an incredible teacher, and he was teaching. He said, you know, I've been around you guys for a while, and I think you are experts at the model and novices at the message. Like, oh, Lord, have we put more faith in the basket than the bread? Lord, help us. And it was actually a helpful word. It got us on a humble journey to rediscover, refall in love with the gospel and what it is to take the bread of life to multitudes. Let's not be model experts. Let's have a conviction about model, but let's, let's not be model experts because, friends, when our model starts working, if we put our hope in the model, we will peter out. But actually, the gospel is eternal life. The basket is not eternal life. It has life maybe for a generation, maybe for a decade. And we've got to find a new basket. Hello? 
Let's put our hope in the bread and not the basket. Secondly, there is no multiplication without subtraction. There's no multiplication without subtraction. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and fish, gave thanks for them, broke them, and distributed them to the crowd. So we know a little boy gave up his fish and bread. But honestly, I've got some questions about the exchange. I mean, my, my first question was, was it willingly given or taken? I mean, I, I don't think Andrew was, was, was a playground bully. Uh, but, but this wasn't just like a sandwich swap, you know? I grew up with a sandwich swap. I'll give you my cheese and chutney sandwiches for your pork pie. I was really good at that. This was a sandwich takeover for the multitudes. And I just imagine this little boy with, with Andrew with a little bit of a tug of war, you know. Uh, I've got some questions. Was it, was it really willingly given or, or taken? And, and why a boy? Why a young dependent, not a breadwinner, as it were? Not a guy who can replace the resources? Seems unfair. Seems demanding, not age appropriate. And, and mostly... Mostly, my biggest question, why his whole lunch? For heaven's sake. If Jesus is this multiplying miracle worker, why doesn't he just take one fish, two pieces of bread, little macfish sandwich? Why? Why, why the whole thing? Why the whole thing? And, and for me, friends, that is the rub in this passage. That is the rub for some reason, Jesus seemed okay to use all the fish and the bread of a little boy. All of it. And he also seemed okay to leave that boy for a moment empty-handed. With the pain of subtraction, even in the midst of the joy of multiplication. Imagine that little boy, empty-handed, seeing all these loaves and fishes. It's like, thanks, I think. It, it reminds me, forgive me, but my favorite movie, Nacho Libre, you know? When Nacho Libre is like talking about the, the joy and the pain of, of ministry, and he's like, yeah, I, I get up every, every morning at five, make myself a little bit of soup. I love it. It's beautiful. It's the best. And you just go, I do not believe you for a second, right? He, 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 he's talking about the, 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 the pain of subtraction. There is no multiplication without subtraction. And we have this, this vision of multiplication, friends. That means that we allow Jesus, the giver of life, to invade our margins. I don't know about you, but I love margins. I love margins of people. I love margins of money. I love margins of ministry. But actually, when we say, Jesus, we trust you. You are worth it. The multitudes are worth it. The compassion that works in your heart is now in our heart. We just want to put our bread in your hands. As, as a church, we've, you know, when Ronell and I joined Southlands 11 years ago, we, we never knew that we were joining a church so committed to multiplication. I don't know if we would have joined if we knew it. Southlands, by God's grace, has multiplied 16 times in 20 years. Not all of them successful, some of them painful, but many of them incredibly fruitful. Southlands has always multiplied as a medium-sized multiplying church. Maybe today, <laughs> 
if you gathered everyone together and had all the pastor's kids stay for the second service and put their hands up for the count, maybe we'd just about be large. But actually, the multiplication has not happened as a large church. And it's meant that Jesus has invaded our margins again and again and again. But man, the joy in the midst of subtraction, the joy of multiplication. I remember before we planted the team into Thailand two years ago, and Dan and Marsha's son, Isaiah, my youngest son's best friend, had his last sleepover. And there was Asher and Isaiah, sorry, Levi and, and Isaiah, their last night. And I'm just sitting there watching them sleep, just saying, enough already, Lord. I can't do this. One thing for me, but my son. Pain of subtraction. But then, you know, Nick and I were on the phone to, to Dan last week, and he said, you know, we've been doing evangelism in a school in Thailand, and 12 students put their faith in Christ. 12 people, first time ever, mentioning the name of Jesus with love and faith, and you just go, Lord, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Very simply, having a lasting multiplication vision is a willingness to have less resources, less margins, perhaps less fame. My friends, there's nothing wrong with large. I love large. But actually, a multiplication vision is different to a mega church vision. You have to eat a slice of humble pie with a side of obscurity. This little boy was never mentioned again. And yet he put his, hand, his bread in Jesus' hands and was part of a miracle. Thirdly, God restores our resources abundantly and changes them liberally. The beauty of this miracle is that there was lots left over, 12 baskets full. And friends, as we, whether we small, medium, or large, as we say, Lord, we're just putting our leaders, our money, our people, our worshipers, our givers, the people that fill the room with faith, we're putting them with wisdom and risk in your hands for your glory. There is that moment of like, <gasps> Would you ever restore? And then you see Jesus start to restore in wonderful ways. People and finances. You, you sow hundreds of thousands of dollars and you get a whole building back. I don't know how that works. We went out for a building, but God in his grace says, I can restore. I can restore leaders. I can restore people. You sow an incredible worship leader and you get five raw rookie worship leaders back. Jesus is a restorer. The same multiplying power that multiplied bread and fish to the multitudes also is a restoring power that had 12 baskets full of crumbs. But, but, we cannot forget in our multiplying vision that Jesus also changes the form of what we sowed liberally. Fragments is the word. Fragments. In other words, breadcrumbs, 12 baskets full of breadcrumbs. What are you going to do with breadcrumbs? Make bread pudding. Feed the birds. Tuppence a bag. 
12 baskets full, verse 12, of fragments implies abundance and change. And people say, oh, Jesus will restore back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. And I say, yes, absolutely. He is a restorer. But when we surrender our resources to Jesus to be broken and multiplied, we're not only sure that he will restore them in time back to us, but we are also surrendering the form in which he restores them to us. I've found in 21 years of leading multiplying churches that Jesus never replaced the friends we sent out. He sent new ones. Friends who left, our relationship with them had to change. It wasn't Sunday around the picnic blanket. It was maybe one visit a year, but, but actually God in His grace allowed that to deepen. We say when people join our church, Know that if you join Southlands, any one of our congregations, there will be warm hellos and sad goodbyes. Count the cost. And I'm saying that to you, friends, because some of you, I'm talking with a man this, this, this week. He's, he's, he's three years into his plant and about to multiply. And friends, it's actually a culture that you build before you do it. You start a multi-site journey. And along the way, God starts to shift and says, actually slacken it up. Give them more autonomy. Abundance, change. There's no guarantees that, that the loaf remains the loaf. It's abundance, but it's fragments. Have your teams halve, then have them double again. Fragments. Have your son say good, goodbye to his best friend. And have a rich visit once a year. Fragments. Fragments. The degree to which we allow Jesus to change the shape of our church is the degree to which he can ongoingly use us and restore us in multiplication. Your leadership teams, if you're going to multiply, always need to have more than you need right now. You say, well, I don't know how to even start multiplying. Start raising up leaders. Jam that pipeline full of leaders. Have them sitting on the bench. Develop warm, familial community in your church, but make sure it's not clingy. Abundance and change. You doing good? Fourth, there's a fight to recover momentum after multiplication. I, I find it fascinating, verse 18, that both in John and Mark's account of the multiplying miracle, there is a storm after the miracle. There's a storm. And verse 18 says this, darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not come to them yet. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. What a, what, what a description of weather. Jesus was far off. He had not come to them yet. Mark 6 of the same account says, they made headway painfully because the wind was against them. The sea began to churn. There was darkness. See, what's, what's happening here is they are, are, are rowing against the wind. They're beginning to lose momentum, and they're actually beginning to lose heart. Friends, it's not just 
ascending church. It's, it's also those who go, where you start, and it's amazing, and then six months in, you talk to Nick and Kari or, 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 or Kelly and Marianne or Kevin Shan. Man, the novelty wears off. It's so cool to be setting up in your own venue and, you know, in a new city, discovering new missional rhythms. And then it's like another 7 a.m. putting up the chairs and having the sound feedback. And it begins to churn. You begin to say, Jesus, you sent us. Are you with us still? And for the sending church, it's not just how many you send, it's who you send. It's your people of faith. It's... It's your givers, it's your lovers, it's your worshipers, it's your leaders. All qualities that make it feel like the air has gone out of the room. But friends, Jesus is with us. He's with us. He insists to these disciples, take heart, it is I. You see, friends, it's, it's so easy to start to lose emotional buoyancy as we feel like we lose momentum. There's a fight to regain momentum after the miracle of multiplication. And if you don't have a taste for rowing against the wind, don't multiply. (laughs) But man, when you start to feel the wind change again, when you start to sense Jesus is back in our boat, there's nothing like it. How have we fought to regain momentum, both sending and sent ones? Firstly, we've tried to give people permission to lament. It's not stiff upper lip. Actually, there can be joy and pain in this. As you say goodbye, not forever, but actually as Jesus changes the nature of relationships between friends, life group leaders, bands, teachers, pastors, it just takes time for people to grieve. You look at Acts 20. Where, where Paul left the Ephesians elders and they, and they knelt and they wept and what grieved them most was that they would never see his face again. Give people permission to lament, even in the joy of multiplication. At the end of Mark's gospel, same account where the disciples are saying, where are you? You know, Jesus saying, Take heart, it is I, was not just an encouragement. It was a description of their internal weather. They were losing heart. And it says at the end, Mark 6.52, this amazing thing, it's because they didn't understand the loaves in the storm. Profound. In other words, they didn't realize that Jesus' broken body was not just for the saving of the multitude. Jesus' broken body, the loaves, was to hold us together when we feel like we are falling apart in the storm of multiplication. Friends, understand the loaves, that Jesus is the one that holds us together when we feel like we're falling apart. Teach your people to take their grief, take their wounds to the wounded one for encouragement. Permission to lament, and then on the other side, reasons to rejoice. Good friend Greg Caruso came through about a year ago, and, and I said, Greg, we've multiplied four times in five years. We, we, we are making headway, but painfully. Give us some wisdom. And he said, Alan, one thing, party with the people. Find reason to party. Rejoice at every inch you make. Find reason to honor 
every baptism, every new member. Don't just rejoice at what's happening out there. Rejoice at every inch you make as the sending church. Have family reunions when you come back together. And then you do have report backs of who's been saved and marriages healed and cities reached and served. Party with the people. You've got to laugh one moment, cry the next. Permission to lament and reasons to rejoice. Friends, as leaders, we've got to be skillful to rebuild morale. Let me tell you this. Just like you will never heal a broken marriage by having kids, you will never heal a broken church by planting churches. Don't aim to be big. Just aim to be healthy. And then fight for health. Fight for unity. Fight for joy. There was a time when Jesus didn't only get into the boat, but when he got in, the boat was miraculously transported over to the other side. Friends, this too will pass. Your storm will pass. You'll find yourself going, we thought we were sunk after that last multiplication, but actually, Lord, there was a time when you acted swiftly and we find ourselves in another, another season with the wind at our back. It's Jesus' job to multiply and restore. It is our job to take heart and help our people take heart. Fifthly and finally, disciples can catch a culture of multiplication over years. The thing I love about the feeding of the 5,000 is that the disciples, when Jesus says, who's got some loaves, they immediately go, well, it can't be us. We've got to go somewhere else. To find a little boy. Take his loaves. Three chapters later, Mark 8, verse 5, Similar situation. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He says to his disciples, how many loaves do you have? And they say, seven. Isn't that beautiful? The boys are growing up. No longer saying, oh, it can't be us. It's got to be someone else. And even then they say, well, we've only got seven, Jesus. But man, we've seen what you did with five before. And here we're ready to put our bread in your hands again. It's easier to put your hands in the bread of life's hands when you've seen him multiply and restore. You don't have to go rushing after every network for funding. It's not terrible, but actually what Jesus has put in our hands is never enough, but it'll do. It'll do. How many loaves do you have, boys? Seven. Seven. These disciples had embraced a new culture. And as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You can have a multiplying strategy. You can have a multiplying mission and vision. It's all great. But a culture is one in which we say, Jesus, we're okay for you to invade our margins. We're okay for you to invade, invade our resources. Sorry. Wisdom is required. If you think I'm cavalier, I'm not. We find ourselves after five years pressing pause on multiplication, saying, Lord, restore us again. Give us health again. But our, our heart has always been to put our bread back in Jesus' hands because his heart has gripped ours for the multitudes. Finally, how do you build culture? 
how do you build culture from let's get resources from the boy to actually Jesus, we've got seven, seven loaves. Practically, our culture began to catch on after years of pressing pause and multiplication, began to catch on when God gave us a strategy and we went to the church and we said, all of the staff elders will take their tithes and not put it towards the running budget. We will put it towards a church planting war chest. And the church sat up, took notice. Oh, you guys are serious about that. And as you can imagine, it was hundreds of thousands every month. <laughs> now, I think, honestly, there was five staff elders, and it, 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 was, it was probably about 30,000 a year. But over three years, we built a $100,000 war chest. Hadn't started planting yet. But the church was like, oh, these guys are serious at that. Got traction when we paid off our debt with the help of so many, and we didn't start living large, but we took what we were paying towards debt and we put it back to church planning. Oh, are they serious about this? You willing to tighten the belt, live on a little less? Was propelled by having a leadership training pipeline for elders and potential planters. It was deepened when our prayer times were about other cities that were potential new places, sometimes even prayer walks, monthly going up on a hill saying, this is the Southland, Lord. Give us the Southland. What's the next city, Lord? It was strengthened by our willingness to send not just planters, but people to go and strengthen other churches. We're about to send another valuable, valuable leader to go and strengthen another leader, another church on the other side of the earth. People go, oh, okay, I don't have to be the leader of this thing. I can actually go and be a part of it using my gift. Friends, it requires wisdom, but at the end of the day, which was what PJ spoke about, it's a spirit of faith saying, Jesus, you are the bread of life given to save and satisfy, and you are the one that multiplies and restores. So what are you going to do when Jesus asks you for your lunch? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these people, these churches, churches old and churches young, churches small, medium, and large, Thank you, Lord, for the many churches that have allowed you to invade their margins for the sake of the multitudes. But my, my earnest request, Jesus, is that you would enlarge our faith, is that you would enlarge our willingness to put our resources in your hands. Lord, we know wisdom is required, but we, we admit that very often we are holding on in caution and conservatism because we do not trust that you are able to restore what we give. And we say, Jesus, won't you use us by your grace, by your multiplying power to plant churches that plant churches all over this continent and beyond for the sake not of our name, but your name that we might fulfill the great commission, making disciples that make disciples 
help us, Lord, may our conversations not be about comparison and selfish ambition, but a godly ambition to make disciples in this nation and in every nation for your glory. And everyone said, Amen.